On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit-Downs with your host, Jenny Anchando. Hello, everybody. Good to have you here. I'm Jenny Anchando, and Second Shot is another Second Shot Sit-Down because we just keep having these incredible people that are coming into our experience and we think you know what it's not a two-minute interview with this person it's it's something that we need to go deeper on and we think that everybody can benefit from hearing from them so today's second shot sit down is someone who says she i mean essentially was a bully as a child and has used that experience to transform herself she has flip the script and talk about a second shot. Kristen G's is the creator of advising generation Z. Good afternoon, Kristen. Good to see you. Good to see you. You know, we've spoken before. I did a short interview with with you before and I thought, you know what, we've, we've got to get deeper into this story. And, and I think it's special that you are so candid and open about the fact that, Hey, you know what? I, I was not my best self when I was younger but now I'm helping other people. So talk about that history and what you were like as a younger girl. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this in during my TED Talk, which was the first time that I had actually publicly spoken about being a bully. I mean, I talked about it in my campuses where I teach kids and things, um, but never on a, a stage. But it was really opening to me during that whole process of going back and reflecting, right? I mean, I was naturally a child that was really good at telling people what to do. And because there's not really any programs at school that kind of help you learn how to be a leader, um, it forced me to kind of be at school and think, well, I'm gonna start coming up with all of these different ideas, you know, and just kind of corrupting my classmates. And really it stemmed from me being angry that my father left. My father and my mother divorced when I was younger and I had this rage in me and didn't know how to communicate that to my family um, and, and kind of took it out on the kids that were at school with me. It sounds like it ended up taking a teacher saying, hey, look, you've got a couple choices. You can be a good leader or a bad leader. And we see that in the adult form all the time. Do we not? People who are gifted with leadership skills, but use it to direct people to the wrong things. And it sounds like you knew, okay, I got a couple options here. Right. Um, Well, actually what happened was I was about to go to jail from my actions of bullying. Um, I had gathered a group of cheerleaders. I was on the cheer team um, and I had called this young lady. And this is back in the day. I don't want to tell my age, but this is back in the day when, you know, self (laughs) work after nine so you had to use the landline so i used the school phone to call this young lady and threaten her and her mother for dating one of my friend's boyfriends passed the phone around and made everyone call this girl and threaten her and we were saying everything that you would say with a parent not being there i mean death threats wasn't we weren't going to act on these but our words were very powerful in that moment 
and they happened to have a camera at school and and was able to catch us on camera and catch me specifically dialing the number, giving the phone to all 10 girls that called and made um, these threats. And so in that moment, the options were, I was gonna go to a juvenile detention center, I was going to be getting expelled or that my mom could move me out of that district um, where I would be 40 miles from that campus. And when she moved me to a new district, it was then my assistant principal, Dr. Linda Parker, um, who had the option of deciding, do I go to alternative school, detention center, Center, or will they allow me to come into her campus? And the agreement was I could come into her campus if I stayed underneath her wing and learned how to use my leadership skills for good. Wow. So we're not talking like a little slap on the wrist. We're talking, this is not just a little mean girl scenario. This is oh, directed, targeted threats and potential jail time. Correct. I mean, I before prior to that event, I had done a number of things. And so the school at this point needed to catch me on camera. And I just happened to get caught on camera that day. Um, we, I mean, we were doing all sorts of things that I'm not proud of. But in the grand scheme of things, which is what I tell my students all the time, you never know how the skills that you're using for bad are really skills that could be using for good. Right. Like there's no way the way that I could organize crime at school is the same way in the same discipline that I put in organizing the 46 campuses that we're in. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about advising Generation Z because th th that's a far cry from where you were. And I hope that parents who are listening to this and watching this can hear this and can know that if they're worried about their child and their child is that girl or that guy, that, that, that little person who um, is really seeking out for help and attention, that they can truly transform and become something so much better. So what is advising Generation Z and talk about the work that you're doing in the community? Yeah, so Advising Generation Z, I created about nine years ago. Um, and specifically, we work with kids that are getting in trouble, kids that were like me. Our program is the model for the misguided. So if they are in alternative school or detention center or in teen or truancy court, they are court ordered or school sanctioned to come to our program for six weeks all the way to 32 weeks. And we really work on helping them become a leader, dealing with the root of the issue of why they are acting out the way that they are, um, and kind of giving them a second chance at life. That was what I really needed and what Dr. Parker gave me. And I think the important part of our program is that we really partner with schools and judges and parents to help their child. You have to take a holistic approach if you're going to change behaviors um, when it comes to our misguided leaders. Yeah, and you think about those, those kids that so often don't get that chance, right? They're going down the wrong path. Everybody sees it. Their, their parents right. know it. Most parents know it. Most teachers know it. And, and, and somehow they, get, they slip through those cracks and end up sometimes becoming adult criminals. So at what point are you guys intervening? Or at, at what point are these students sort of coming into your program? So we start from fourth grade until 12th grade. And the good thing that we do as well is when they do graduate from high school and they're maybe out of our program, we actually hire college students that are doing their practicum hours, undergraduates, to come out and actually teach the program. So that that way we have not only taken them from elementary, middle school, high school, we're now with them for college, which by that time we have made an impact. And I've had you know two or three that have come back and worked for me full time. That's amazing. That's, that's remarkable. So you're seeing you're seeing this program actually work. Now, part of what we were talking about when we were first, you know, kind of saying, gosh, Kristen would be a great guest was that, okay, so there's this part of advising Generation Z. And then there's also this component of hiring Generation Z, right? Like companies, a lot of um, 
business people watch this show, listen to this podcast, are connected to this community. And, um, you know, there's a lot of trash talking that goes into, well, first it was millennials. And now I think millennials are old because I'm a millennial technically. Um, <laughs> but now it's Generation Z. So how is it if somebody's saying, look, I have a business, I want to get connected to this younger generation. How do they do that? How do you go about finding the best of the best and bringing them into your work community? Um, I would say as a practitioner, um, some of the things that we've done in the last couple of years is really partner with some of these major organizations in helping our students find jobs or find mentors, um, especially our college students, because they need to see someone at a senior level that looks like them that has changed their entire life. Um, and so one of the things that I always share with any of our executive staff that come in and kind of work with our students is that one, Gen Z wants to see transparency. And the thing that we have to really take our blinders off about is that every generation after baby boomer has really just amplified what we've been taught. So if you are wanting to know why it is that they're calling you out, it's because we listened to you say when you didn't speak up. So this generation is going to use their voice and it's unrealistic to think that they need to do the, the job the way that it's always been done. Um, so if you really are wanting to engage with that younger generation, you're going to have to break your own traditions of how things are done. They may want to get on TikTok, send a text message and an email and eat and listen to music all at the same time and get their job done. And that's their prerogative and you as a manager and a leader have to be flexible in understanding that. Well, it's interesting. We were talking about diversity kind of behind the scenes as we were preparing this and, 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 and your perspective on this. And I think companies are, they're making it, some are making an effort. Some are saying they're making an effort and some are doing nothing. So do you think that those companies that are only saying they're making an effort, but not, are they going to sort of miss out on a big hiring opportunity? Absolutely. We've still been having um, town halls with our students and the conversation that we just recently had was um, I had about 50 students ask this question. Why should I go work for any of these companies or become their consumer when there's no one in their leadership staff that looks like me? That means that I'll be working there for 20 years for them to notice who I am. So they're paying attention. And we've also had the discussion that for some reason, there's a celebration when a company has been around for 100 years and they're finally hiring their first black person or Latino person or their first female executive staff. That's not a celebration to Gen Z or to millennials. That's really a, what have you been doing all this time? And what has your staff been doing? Have opportunities not arisen? Has no one applied to these jobs? And then it starts to make you fact find and you start looking on LinkedIn at some of these corporations and what their leaders look like and what they're talking about. If they're not talking about social justice issues, at least one post, why would I want to have brand loyalty for your company, which is what Gen Z is thinking. So here's the question, though, on the opposite side, is there not room for somebody to say, hey, I'm going to do better starting now? You know, um, leadership changes and people can only do as well as the information they have in front of them. Is there room for that? Absolutely. I think there's definitely room for that. But the truth of the matter is you have to have more than just town halls. I think a lot of things that we've seen is um, this flashy corporate sponsorship where they're saying we're donating millions of dollars. We're pledging to donate millions of dollars in the black and brown community. We're pledging to create more positions. And that's all great. 
but tell us when it's completed. Tell us when it's actually posted on your website and how it's going to be applied. And also you're gonna have to start allowing some of your younger generation's leaders speak up. So if you have a millennial staff and you're trying to target Gen Z, you can't just have the baby boomer doing all the talking. If you're saying you're changing, change it by allowing our generation to have a voice because that's what's important to us. We would rather be broke and, and, and be happy than have a whole bunch of money and have to be silenced. So you're going to have to pass the baton. And I think that's what the conversation really is. Is this company rebranding itself and having another facelift and having another change? Or are they really allowing the people that are working there right now that are young, being the spokesperson, being in those visible roles so that it can engage younger audiences? Yeah, speaking of being young, this is something I wanted to touch on. Um, Oh my gosh, we have gone back and forth in the newsroom on this, where we've got a multitude of different generations and the generation sort of before me in the news world is uh, not, you know, I mean, by and large, not everybody ticked off when somebody in their 20s rises up through the ranks and ends up in Dallas, Texas as a correspondent or as a news anchor or host. I mean, I'll never forget, I showed up at a, a job in Arizona um, as an anchor and I went in, put my stuff, and they said, uh, you guys, that intern's over there at the new anchor's chair. And what a way to be received. I don't know if it was intentional or if it was they really thought that I was an intern. I wasn't that young. But, yeah, I mean, I was young for that position. And I'll never forget vowing from that point on, I am never going to tell anybody my age because mm -hmm. I, I – felt that they, they truly didn't value my experiences. And I will say there are some things that only come with time in the seat, but I really am seeing that this younger generation is saying, Hey, no, 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 we can get there faster with the tools and technology we have. And maybe we don't have to pay those hard dues like some people did before. I definitely think that that's a, a great thing. And one of the things we have to think about, too, with the next generation is, one, they're able to graduate high school with uh, an associate's degree and their high school diploma, their master's degree faster. So there's no way that you can tell someone to get all of this education. Yet now when they come to the job, you're saying, I need to see nine years of work or seven years of work before you can have an opportunity to even just sit at the table. I think that's where the disconnect comes in. Um, and also, I think, too, just to be honest, Sometimes as an older generation, not all, because I want to be very clear. I know they like to put us all in little boxes, right? But not all. They feel like we need to share the same burden. Okay, it took you 15 years to get there. Right. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Then what you should be saying to me is, young person, I am so proud of you for getting here faster. Let me tell you the dodgeballs that are going to come your way. And let me tell you how to dodge it. We don't have more of those conversations. Instead, there's this offense. How dare you get here faster or feel like you can get here faster? But in real life, I know how to use my cell phone, drive, talk. I know how to multitask. I've grown up in a multitask generation. We are the resilient generation. So don't put that burden on us for inheriting the lifestyle and the world that you have created from things that you didn't have. And I think that's where it becomes an argument. When we're not really trying to argue, it's like, I don't want to prove that I know what I know. You've seen it or I wouldn't be sitting here. So acknowledge that. I don't need a pat on the back every day, but I don't want to argue with you about why I'm not dealing with the same struggles that you dealt with. Oh, that one, give, that one gives me goose bumps because I, um, gosh, even just having a child, sometimes sometimes I'm like, well, there's, there are laws in place that protect, for example, nursing mothers or, you know, pumping and things like that where, where there weren't laws for the women who came before us. And sometimes you're up against women who don't want to 
enforce those laws because nobody enforced it for them. So I, I think that that's a great way that you explained it, where um, if you're in that position, if, you, if you're in upper management and you're hiring somebody and you're like, ooh, how about have the, here are the things you're going to have to dodge and, um, and give them that advice. On the other end of it, the younger generation has to be open to hearing that advice too. Agreed. And and that's where the struggle comes in, right? Um, because sometimes we don't want to listen. But I think there's a difference between having a conversation and then having a lecture or a chastising moment. And so I think as a senior leader, it's not your younger generation's staff's job to be flexible to you. It's your job as a leader to be flexible to them. And so that means having real conversations. And I think the hard part is that we live in a society where no one wants to actually have confrontation or have those uncomfortable conversations without um, having an audience or making it so formalized. And I think that's where um, the younger generation has tuned out because we hear it from our parents. We hear it from family reunions. We have watched and witnessed our families work at these corporations for 20 plus years and never getting what they felt like they deserve. So for our generation, it's like, I can listen to this lecture, but I hear it at home. So if you want to inspire me and you want me to do something, inspire what you require from me. If you want me to, to be more responsible or to be more patient, show me patience when I'm doing my work in a way that you feel like it shouldn't be done, but the task is still completed. Mm, inspire. What, say that again. What was, what was the phrase? Inspire what you require from us inspire what you require. So let's like mull over that for a second, inspire what you require. So you're saying it's sort of like setting the example, right? Exactly. Setting the example and realizing as a leader, when I come into a new staff, my job is to really get to know them. There is no way that I can expect them to do their job in the way and understand the struggles that I have faced as an elder if I don't have the conversations with them to tell them, not a lecture, conversations and finding new ways. And, and I'll give you a prime example. Um, I worked before starting my business. I worked at a Fortune 500 company and I had two leaders. One leader who did a great job of inspiring me every morning. He actually is the reason why I applied for TED Talks because every morning he would say, Kristen, it's gonna take you 99,000 hours to become a perfectionist at your craft in order for it to be seen on a, on a major scale. So until then, every day I want you to watch a TED Talk and you're gonna write me a paragraph and every morning I'm gonna take 20 minutes to hear your feedback on that TED Talk. And it can be about whatever you want, but I want to educate your mind. That inspiration every day made it easier for me when he told me, hey, Kristen, this project that you're doing, you did a good job, but here's some suggestions that I have because he's already opened the floor for us both to be learning and to hear from me. Inspire what you require. If you want me to be patient, then teach me how to be patient. If you want me to study something a little bit longer, teach me how to do those things and be able to give me that voice back. And isn't it beautiful that um, giving the gift of time is such a, to me, that is the most valuable. The people who I value the most are the people that I give 20 minutes to. So that person, talk about investing every day in you. So you got a TED Talk. How cool, how exciting. So many people want to know how to do that. You know, like they've got an idea ruminating. Can you tell us about that process, how you decided on your topic, how you applied and all of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not going to lie, TED Talk was something that was on my list of like 100 things to do. Um, and I went to a training um, 
maybe a couple of months before I applied for a Fortune 500 company that had um, wanted to talk to, uh, to me about and how to market to them. And while I was there, one of the leaders there said, um, Krista, you have a really fascinating story. Have you ever like thought about talking to adults about what you're doing? I know you're working with these kids and you've made such an impact with your staff, but have you thought about really sharing your story? And I drove home that day and I said, let me look up what the requirements are for TED. And, and it's a lot of requirements, right? I mean, there's a whole interview process. You submit a video and then you you know audition. And for the TED Talk that I did, there were about 200 um, people who were also auditioning and they only choose 10. And so I had applied for three locations. I made it to the, all three locations in the top 10. So that's a lot of interviewing. That's getting on stage. And so I said, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to be passionate about what I'm doing and I'm going to memorize my lines because there are no cue cards, you have to memorize it. Um, and you have to memorize it in a way where it doesn't sound like a robot. I knew that the only way I could do that would be talking about what I know, which is that if we want to stop bullying and if we really want to inspire the next generation um, to really take the reins and be the leaders we want to see, we're going to have to start inviting them to the conversation. And we do that by giving them small tasks that teaches them how to become leaders. And so I really just told my story about being a bully and that transformation that Dr. Parker gave me and how she's still in my life today. And I'm 30 and she was in my life when I was 15. So just that long time of a relationship, right? 15 years is what really molds a person. And I think sometimes when you're thinking about applying for a TED Talk, people want to just find out whatever is catchy. But telling your story is what's going to make it easier for you during all of that training. Because once you get selected to that top 10, the real work begins because then you come to rehearsal every week and they want you to know those lines in addition to your whole outside life. So telling your story becomes easy and it becomes therapeutic. And you can see that on the stage when watching my talk. I had no idea about that aspect of it. So you have to show up to rehearsals once you get picked in the top 10. Then how does that work? You show up to the rehearsals for how long? Um, you show up to rehearsals for about three months and you actually get assigned a coach that meets with you weekly and you have to turn in your draft. Because initially when you audition, you only have to know the first three minutes of what you're going to talk about. And you can change that at any time, but you can't change the topic. So once you have been selected, day one, it's tell me your first seven minutes with, from memory. And then it's working on now that you know, now that you've written it all out, because they make you write it all out. Once you've written it all out, now it's perform it. Now perform it in pieces, perform, start at the end. I mean, it was a very tedious process that I had to, at first, I thought I could just like wing it. And then I realized, okay, no, I've got to practice three hours a day in order to be prepared for that moment. And again, you can tell when I was on stage that I was there and present and not just because it's me, but because it really was, uh, it's a it's a process and a fight, like I said, with myself, because you have to get out of your own mind and anything can go wrong. I mean, if you watch the talk, the projector wasn't working, but I still flowed. But it was because of all of that practice that it caught up and you didn't even know. But if you weren't prepared for that moment, you'll be embarrassed because it's live. There's an audience right there. It's taped and you want to make sure you know your lines. Right. Well, that's interesting. I had no idea the backstory on this. And ha ha do you think that doing that helped pro propel your, I don't know, clout credibility and that sort of thing that, that that's kind of now on your bio and people know you've been through that? 
I definitely think doing a TEDx is a, a, a good way to get that last stamp of credibility. I think um, pursuing a master's degree in education and leadership was definitely one. Writing a book was one. Um, and just being in my field for nine years, you know, I did things a little bit backwards. And every time I met with an elder, they always told me like, oh, you need to get accredited first. And I was like, no, I really want to know my craft first. So I was more focused on my students, which made it easier for me when it came time to actually do the performance because I had so many campuses that I could say, okay, kids, watch what I'm saying. Am I speaking for you? Because if I'm not telling, if when I'm telling my story, if I'm not telling the story of every misguided leader who has ever been a bully, who has ever been a criminal or who has ever been labeled as a bad child or a bad seed, then I wasn't doing what I was called to do in that moment. And so that was probably the most rewarding time is going to my campuses and doing it in front of my kids and seeing them cry saying, you spoke up for me. I know that people are going to understand me now and not just be done with me and wash me to the wayside because I'm being disobedient. So good. So valuable. How many hours would you say went into preparing that TEDx talk? If I had to, I'm going to go back to what my old boss told me, the 99 hours. <laughs> it was about 99 hours of preparation time. And I, it was it was a hard process just writing it out, knowing what you want to say and getting to the point. You know, you only have 18 minutes um, and that sounds short, but that's really not short when you get onto the stage. And then again, do you want to make your speech 18 minutes? Because you have to memorize all of that. So, you know what I mean? Those are the mind balling. I got to 16 minutes, but when I tell you, you have to cut all the fat. There is no talking and, and you know, setting the story. You got to jump into the story. And so that part is hard. It's hard to do. And you want it to be compelling. You want it to be interesting. You've got to memorize it all. I mean, that, you know, you think about public speaking, of course, we all know that that's the number one fear. And it's like, this is public speaking just amplified because of the memorization factor and because of the personal factor that you're talking about yourself. Personal factor, and you have to realize that you don't have control over that tape. So if you mess up on stage, there is no do-over. So <laughs> that's one thing I, if I want to stress, you have no do-over. So what you say, you better get it together. If you forgot your lines, you better act like you remember it because there, there is that pressure. Um, but it's also a phenomenal platform. Since then, I've had so many speaking engagements. I mean, it literally um, just, like I said, modified everything that I was already doing, but gave it to a whole new audience, um, which was the adult which are the adults that are in these kids lives that I'm trying to save that's beautiful do you so with when you do these talks is it do you pay to do it do they pay you to do it is there a money exchange or is it more of a promotional platform it's more of a promotional platform and there's a thing that's why your talk has to be competitive right so I auditioned to three locations and 200 people auditioned from all parts of the world I mean in the top 10 that I was selected and I had people from Florida people from uh, California someone that was from Indiana. So that just tells you they're traveling and no one pays for you to get to and from rehearsal. That's all coming out of your pocket. Um, however, the platform itself is the competition. If you can make it there, I mean, to me, um, doing a TEDx is basically getting a degree. I mean, at, at that point, you've gotten a degree. If you, if you can get up there and you get selected, you have just got a master's degree. That's the equivalent to the status of that. Yes. Education comes in all kinds of ways, doesn't it? <laughs> wow. Well, Kristen, it's been a joy to talk to you. I'm glad that we had this extended conversation. Remind everybody where they can find you, your social handles, your website, etc. Absolutely. So advisinggenerationz.com. Um, there you can find everything about anything of us. If you just type in and Google anywhere, Kristen G's, my website will come up. And then on social media, it's Kristen G's and advising Gens.
Excellent. Thank you for the wonderful work you're doing in the community. And, um, and thank you for the background insight on, on the TEDx talk. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. You bet. Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I am so enjoying doing the second shot sit downs. A reminder, if you're listening to the, the long version, um, there's a TV version too, and it airs on CW 33 weekdays at 10 a.m. So I invite you to join us there for morning after and second shot. Uh, if you have anything to say about it, email us secondshotcast at gmail.com. Have a good one, everybody.